0: camp podcast this is the podcast where four psychotherapists three of us canadian one of us americans serving cutting-edge mental health knowledge i am dr ryan house a clinical psychologist from pasadena california
1: and i'm dr brooke lewis a registered clinical
2: counselor from the greater vancouver area and I'm Joanna
3: Boyd, also a registered clinical counselor from the greater Vancouver area. I'm Chris Boyd, psychotherapist from, from Port Moody.
0: There you are. Yeah. Port Moody. I don't think you've said Port Moody before. Just trying so to switch it up, you know. Before. Is, it, is it inaccurate? Have you moved? What's going on here? I thought you're from
3: Coquitlam. I think technically I work in Coquitlam and I live in Port Moody, so both are applicable.
0: Ah, I got it.
1: And I guess you would work in Port Moody when you're working virtually from the house.
3: That's true. And both are technically in Greater Vancouver.
1: So it's all correct.
3: So it's all correct.
0: And confusing.
3: And confusing. Yeah, that's true too.
0: Happy American Thanksgiving to you guys. I am thankful. Gobble, gobble. gobble. Let's hear the, we have to, I guess, annually we have to hear Joe do her Her great uh, turkey thing. Let's do it, Joe. Oh
2: my (laughs) gosh!
0: It's pretty good. Okay. Pretty good. That's I
1: totally forgot. Oh, Oh. that's great.
0: She does a fantastic job. It's it's like you grew up with turkeys or something. Like you knew (laughs) you have a real insight into the turkey voice, the vocalizations. That's great. Uh I gotta say I watched a uh, a show actually just last night on uh PBS. Do you guys have PBS up there? Yeah. Even though isn't it like isn't that a, a US thing? Public broadcasting service, is that
3: anyway. Well we have it. Oh, it definitely is, yeah. We pick it up. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you have it. And uh it was called My Life as a Turkey, I believe is what it's called.
1: Oh, my
0: goodness. And it's about a a guy who uh, was there when he uh, it's it's a show. Oh. The, the the show is called Nature and the episode is called My Life as a Turkey. And he was there for some reason. He had um, a whole like like a dozen eggs of turkey eggs that were left on his porch. And he was there when they were born. And then he made these sounds to the turkeys like like a mother turkey sound. And they all like imprinted, they bonded to him. They saw him as mother. And so he spent the next year raising these baby turkeys to become full-grown turkeys. And it was was a really interesting episode. I I highly recommend it for anybody who's interested in, in development he he talked about how like they taught him about like how they enter the environment like they like the turkeys would walk around and uh it was interesting that like the the wildlife when he was walking around with these these dozen turkeys um the wildlife would come out the snakes the the uh, the, the squirrels the deer it's like they were like he got a hall pass kind of like into what nature is really like um uh, when so cool. When, when, yeah, when it's actually just, you know, natural creatures interacting with one another. And uh, he also had to experience the, the, the leaving. The fact that they all kind of had to, they kind of reached a, a bit of maturity and, and left, uh, left him as the mother and uh, kind of went off into their own life. And it was a really interesting little piece.
1: Kind of reminiscent of the, uh, the octopus one. Yeah. yeah. A little bit.
0: I didn't watch that one, but I've heard a lot about it.
1: Just yeah, really hope, uh, being able to, like, see the world of an octopus, right? Like, yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah. I hope that uh, story, the turkey story, doesn't end off at Thanksgiving.
1: I know. I was wondering, too. Oh.
0: It doesn't. These are wild turkeys. They're not uh, not the type that are raised to to be eaten on our Thanksgiving. No, that's good. But, uh, that's, no but they you know that's it there it's also it's they're in nature you know natural things happen there's a circle of life going on so you know it's not all fun and games but uh it was a really interesting show it was it was great so nice just to see how receptive he was to like what what the what the turkeys were teaching him you know that's cool yeah
3: so joe his hope just perfect that turkey call and Need some turkey we're eggs down. and you're set you have a little crew <laughs>
2: on it for sure.
0: yes and on that note i also ate some turkey tonight so they uh, were not ones that i raised or i was not their mother i just bought some from the store and ate some turkey mm-hmm. and it was really good
3: good so did you prepare it in any special way
0: I, I had, instead of doing a full turkey, did uh, two turkey breasts and did one baked in the oven, kind of a more conventional style, and another one that I was a little more, took a little chance with, and I had marinated this turkey breast and I cooked it on the, on the barbecue, and I actually the barbecue turkey turned out a little bit better, had a little more flavor to it. It's really nice. And then a lot of the the conventional things, the the mashed potatoes and the mm-hmm. green beans and a nice. Uh, we didn't do pumpkin pie. We did an apple pie for for dessert. Really good. I'm, I'm fully stuffed and very much looking forward to one of my favorite Thanksgiving traditions, which is the turkey sandwich on the day after.
1: It is a popular sandwich. Oh, for
0: sure. Oh, so good. So good. That's great. So yes. Reach me on a good night. I really like uh really like this holiday. Requires very little in terms of consumerism. We just buy our food, eat it, and then we uh get ready for Christmas, which requires a lot of shopping. <laughs> so
3: yeah, nice way to be thankful prior yes. to the biggest yeah. consumer day of the year. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. You watch some football? Or-
0: I I I'm was so so busy preparing and cooking stuff. I didn't watch any football today, but I know that's a big tradition for the day too. But you guys, you were saying that in Canada, you guys get to uh, appreciate some of the, Some of the runoff from America, which is you get to, this is a big football day for you guys and you don't have to do like throw a big family party.
1: No, but we do have to work all day.
0: Oh, there's that. Yes. Uh (laughs) It's also not a holiday. That's right. Uh Yeah. So I get to check
3: fantasy football on my five minute break, see what's going on. (laughs) Whereas your Thanksgiving was like a month and a half ago, right? It was, yeah. Um, But uh, Black Friday is becoming a big thing up here. So, Ah. We have adopted... Um, That tradition, American tradition.
0: So
2: you
3: can
0: get there bright and early and get there, you know, rush into the store so you can get 5% off the TV that you want to buy or something, right?
3: You know it. Yeah. It's bigger for that 75-incher.
0: That's it. Right. Yes. Well, I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful to have a podcast tonight and i'm also thankful that that our joe who is i feel like we're just still welcoming you back even though you've been back for a few episodes here but like joe's back and she gets to present the ambush for tonight right
2: yeah should i send it over are we doing it
0: yes do it it. let's Let's do do it. it all right ambush joe knows the topic none of us None of the rest of us do, so here we go, everybody. Ready? On Thanksgiving, here is our topic. How do perceptions of gender, gender identity, and sexual orientation impact the well-being of people? Great. Gender, gender identity, and sexual orientation impact the well-being of Um. people.
1: I have a clarification question for you. Sure.
2: (gasps) We have a guest. We have a guest. Uh,
1: I'll wait till uh, Brian joins us. Yes.
2: Hello. Hey Brian.
0: Brian. Hello. Wow. Brian, welcome.
4: So (laughs) nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet all of you.
2: (laughs) So this is my friend Brian. Um, I actually met him through a local organization called Chasing Sunrise, it's kind of a Whoa. community group, and um, I thought it would be fun to have Brian come on, given his work, so I'm going to just read a little bio about him before we get going. So, Brian has been working as an element, uh, intermediate elementary school teacher for more than 20 years now, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> In addition, he has worked as a faculty associate and sh- sessional instructor teaching courses in language arts, methodology, as well as clath- classroom management, as well as facilitating teacher education modules with diversity and literacy themes. He currently holds a district leadership role as a sexual orientation and gender identity support teacher for elementary schools. And so you might hear SOGI is that acronym. Mm-hmm. Um, He has demonstrated a passion for writing and enjoys facilitating rich experiences, writing experiences for students so that they develop the comfort and become experienced. Oh my gosh, (laughs) (laughs) you're making me nervous, Brian here. And, um, And become experimental with language and composition. So in addition, he is very sensitive to the issues surrounding boys and their learning and strives to provide instruction that is highly motivating for all students. And that allows students opportunities to achieve their highest potential. So he's also an advocate for ensuring that LGBTQ um, students and their families see themselves reflected in curricular resources, lessons, and conversations by promoting themes of diversity and acceptance. So Brian has presented all over our, our lovely province and we are very fortunate to have him here today to talk to us on these important topics. So welcome, Brian, and thanks for being here.
4: Thanks very much. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's great. Yeah, welcome.
4: Thank you. Oh, thank you. And so, um, how, how does this work? Do I just? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <right>? So <laughs>
1: typically, uh, typically Ryan here is a bit of a facilitator, okay, um, of questions. But we also just have a general discussion. There might be more, a little bit more geared to you. The questions or feedback. Um, I have one right out of the gates. Typically, we like to define our terms before we get started. So gender versus gender identity. Uh, What else do we have on there, sexual orientation? And was there one more?
0: That's it.
1: That was the three.
0: Gender, gender identity, sexual orientation. That's right.
4: Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So that was gonna be my question before you popped on, just given, um, I feel like, research in this area and, education and awareness has really boomed over the past five, 10 years. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious for you, maybe you could answer this, but just the difference between gender versus gender identity as of current, uh, because I would, you know, go as far to say that we would just swipe out the word gender and just go with gender identity uh, currently, right? So uh, but I could be very wrong on that.
4: Yeah, it's it's complex Mm -hmm. and so um, we try to sort of narrow it down to simple definitions and so i'll go through sort of what are um the four key terms that we kind of tend to refer to in soji and so um, the first is we refer to sex assigned at birth Mm -hmm. and so basically an infant is born doctor takes a look and says oh looks like a boy looks like a girl Um, And of course, sometimes there are situations where they kind of go, um, not entirely sure. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we refer to as sex assigned at birth. And it's typically, you know, what genitalia is evident. Um, And often the term sex in terms of defining by genitalia gets confused with the word gender.
2: Mm -hmm. Because
4: gender... Um, is more related to a couple of things, because one is gender expression that we talk about, and gender expression is generally sort of anything that we do, that we, um, you know, behaviors, uh, our our appearance, that sort of outwardly show um, our gender. So it could be things like choices about makeup, choices about hairstyles, things like that. Um, And then we talk about gender identity. And gender identity is um, essentially, we often use a brain as sort of the symbol of it. And it's how you perceive your own gender. It is how you think and perceive the world as it relates to gender. And so within gender identity, we often, and we'll go into more detail about this as we go, but we often talk about people who are transgender or we might talk about people who are cisgender and we might talk about people who are Mm non-binary. And so that just means when we talk about someone who is transgender, it means that we're talking about somebody whose sex assigned at birth does not align with their gender identity. Mm -hmm. And so, um, for example, someone who was assigned male at birth but does not identify mentally, emotionally um, as that gender, and so presents and and has a gender expression of the other gender. Um, And then the term cisgender, which is a relatively new term, refers to when um, our sex assigned at birth and our gender identity are in alignment. So for me, born doctor said, hey, it's a a boy. I've gone through life feeling relatively comfortable as a boy with the body I am in and my sense of self. And so I'm cisgender. And one of the things that's been really helpful in the work that I do and in education in this field is differentiating gender identity and then sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And sexual orientation is that sense of of who you are um, emotionally, physically, romantically attracted to and so i used to myself when i used to think about someone for for example who was transgender and then was attracted to the the gender that they were assigned at birth and then i was like oh my goodness okay so how does that work and when we separate those two things and we just talk about gender identity as one entity and then sexual orientation as another it's interesting how all these labels that we like to apply suddenly become easier to understand when we have those the clarity of those definitions.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes you explained that very well just the the umbrella categories of the different areas that then we can kind of break down into right because then going into that sexual orientation there's a lot a lot of other terms in there now as well right so there are
4: and And I guess a lot of times when we talk, and particularly when we talk with kids, um, we talk about gender as a spectrum. We talk about sexual orientation as a spectrum. And one of the ways that I like to sort of um, engage people with a conversation about spectrum is often when I'm engaging with an audience, I'll ask people who are right-hand dominant to stand up. And so you watch and you kind of see that, you know, 80 ish percent of your audience pushing 90 will stand up because they tend to be right hand dominant. And then I'll be like, okay, have a look around. And then I ask them to, to sit down. And then I ask left handed people to stand up. So you get a smaller number, but they stand up. And then I ask them to sit down. And then I ask the question, have I left anyone out? And what I find really fascinating in terms of doing that particular activity is we understand sort of right-handedness and left-handedness as a binary concept. And when somebody doesn't fit, like, for example, most people will point out the the people I've left out are people who are ambidextrous. Mm -hmm. And so people who are ambidextrous who don't fit into exclusively right-hand or exclusively left-hand, we often look at as being exceptional rather than abnormal. And when I think about even my experience, I would consider myself a right-hand dominant person, but if you hand me a hockey stick, I hold it left-handed. I have this interesting habit in my classroom where um, particularly when I have kids I know I have to keep my eyes on, I'll be writing on the board and I'll sort of be turned and face my class right on the board. And then instead of shifting my body, I'll just shift pens and continue writing. And oh. it's quite hilarious because the kids usually are like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love the idea of just that, that sense of, you know, we have this sort of binary concept of right hand, left hand. It's also interesting when we think about how we used to treat left-handed people and try to kind of change that behavior. Um, but it sort of helps to illustrate.
1: Chris is left-handed.
4: Okay. Yeah. Am I on Um, but it's interesting when you start to sort of get that idea of, of we have this binary, and then there's all of this space in between. And you get people who announce, oh, I can do this left-handed, oh, I can do this right-handed. And even when we talk about, like when I talk to teachers about inclusion, and people will say to me, Oh, I have a very inclusive classroom. And I always ask do you have a pair of left-handed scissors on your desk so that if somebody comes asking to borrow a pair of scissors do you have a pair of left-handed scissors on your desk and most of us if we're not left-handed don't necessarily consider that and and prepare for it so I just find it's a nice way in terms of talking about spectrum about we have these sort of two really familiar ends of the spectrum and then we look at all that space in between. And we can do the same thing with sexual orientation. We can do the same thing with gender identity. And what's really interesting is that as we as we look at the spectrum for things like gender identity, and as we become more accepting of people somewhere in the middle, somewhere that's not necessarily familiar for some of us who are cisgender, um, it's, it's sort of creating less pressure for people to transition all the way from whatever sex they were assigned at birth all the way to the other gender. Because another, another sort of concept or identity that is relatively new for a lot of people are people who are non-binary. Mm-hmm. And so non-binary can have a number of definitions because for some people it means that they don't relate either to the female identity or to the male identity and neither of those those labels fits them. And so they might consider themselves Mm non-binary. Others might say, you know what, sometimes I really connect with female and other times I really connect with male and there's more of a fluidity between the identities. Mm -hmm. And again, that's another sort of space of non-binary and then it gets into that whole space about um pronouns and and what words do we use when we describe other people
2: smokes mm-hmm. it's a whole <laughs> there's so <laughs> much. different yeah no I'm, I'm glad you're even like describing as you are because i just think there's there's so much to be aware of um and i i definitely yeah, I always enjoy talking with you when we meet up because I always feel like I learn so much. Or <laughs> and it's just a, just sexual orientation, gender identity and um, just the LPTQ plus community. Like it's, I've worked with some individuals but I just, my knowledge is just so limited. So I'm just always ears open when I'm around you. So I yeah. appreciate sharing.
3: Yeah, thanks for joining us, Brian. That's very educational for sure. So it seems like in your capacity, you work a lot with um, the school community. do you also
4: consult with families as well? Um, What I primarily do in terms of supporting families is um, I typically work in supporting families through their schools. So that would often mean I might meet with a parent, with the teacher, with the principal, perhaps with a counselor um, and have that conversation. Um, in part because I don't have that relationship that um, a a family has to their neighborhood school kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so often I'm sort of called in to consult and to give perspective. And um, one of the things that I'm often doing is, is I'm talking to parents who, you know, might have a child and there's some really young children who are very sort of clear and determined about their identities or even about their attraction and often it's sort of um, giving information to parents to kind of get them to take a breath and go because there's so many perceptions about about you know what it is to be gay or what it is to be lesbian or bisexual or what it is to be transgender or non-binary and we get stuck in some of those stereotypes, and so the, the parents and the families that I work with often there's a lot of fear involved and it's. It's sort of having conversation and and helping them understand how important just exploration is and that, for example, if you have a, a, um, a boy who's in kindergarten who wants to wear a dress. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're trans, and that you know the idea of of uh, gender reassignment surgery and all of those fears. We don't know. It might just mean that they enjoy experimenting and trying on a dress. Yeah, yeah. I think that becomes kind of an
0: issue with with a lot of folks, you know, a lot of parents and and educators as well, right, Brian? Like. People kind of trying to to decide, or, or or sometimes even impose their own beliefs onto what that means. Like, are you trying to say that you are a you know you are you want to identify as female, or is this just a a phase you're going through? How, tell me about about how that is navigated.
4: Yeah. Um. What's really interesting is that in in many cases the families that I am connected to often it's the parents who are sort of coming to the school with the story and saying this is what I'm observing in my child they might be getting support from um, other care providers and so they're being helped in terms of navigating this and so um, one of the things that we look at is the three c's insistency consistency and persistency and so particularly when we're looking at young children, when the, the message that they're communicating is, I am a boy and it is persistent and it is consistent and it is insistent, then we're kind of like, okay, there's some things we need to explore and consider here. If it's sort of a cavalier thing where it's like, oh, I wish I was a girl, um, then it's not necessarily the same level of concern. Um, and ultimately what we try to, to support families to do is to explore social transition. Because of course social transition, which is basically no medical intervention, it's allowing a child to express sort of in terms of what they're comfortable with, what appeals to them. So it might mean uh, a child that was assigned male at birth Wears their hair long and wears a dress to school sometimes. And, you know, parents will go, Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, af- I'm afraid of what this means. I'm afraid to send my, my child to school in a dress. And I'm like, Yeah, but you know what? When the school has pajama day, you send your kid in pajamas. And so if that's sort of what's normalized and what is comfortable, um, then it's okay to do that. And so what we are trying to do, and and some of the work that I do with with elementary school teachers is work on teaching kids to just reserve judgment about things like clothing, about things like the length of hair. Because even things as simple as boys with long hair, if we look at what is typical for many cultures, um, including indigenous cultures, like long hair is very typical for males in those cultures. And so it's sort of being aware of how, um, you know, these, these sort of things play out, but it's it's all of the stereotypes that are attached to it. And so a lot of the work that, that I do and that I do with teachers, that I do with families is trying to deconstruct some of these stereotypes and trying to, to rewire some of the messaging um, for example, I had a group of teachers across a number of schools and we decided that one of the things we wanted to do in terms of supporting kids who were in social transition is we wanted to educate about um, if you look at, at different periods throughout history and you look at what was considered gendered clothing in different points in, throughout history, things like high heels were invented for men. And for the purpose of horseback riding, hmm. when we look historically at things like wigs, who got to wear the wigs? It was people of nobility. It was it was typically men. It was people who had elevated status in societies. Um, at one point, pink was considered the color for boys because it it was a strong color, and somehow we've come to this place where we've we've flipped the pink and blue. Um, But it's again it's 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 sort of deconstructing and trying to to rewire some of this thinking about, you know, when you walk into a toy store. And you know you 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 know just visually you look down the aisles and you can see the pink aisle with the Barbies, and you can see the blue aisle with the the matchbox cars. And I think what I think is really fascinating is I have a niece and a nephew who are both six years old, they were born about six weeks apart. And I love that I can buy them both the same Lego kit and they both enjoy it. And yet there's still marketing tendencies with Lego to market pink bricks for girls and the other bricks for boys. Yeah. Well I got to
0: say Brian uh in the in the late 80s early 90s pink was a very cool color for guys. I had I had some pink shirts. I felt very very proud of that and had, had no social ramifications for that. So it I, I'm just joking around here but it's it's uh you're right it's it's a very sociological sort of thing like it kind of goes goes in and out and and right uh, certainly there could be some, some some societal norms for that that uh that people maybe adhere to a little too
4: strongly, right? Yeah, it's certainly shifting. We're certainly seeing um, differences in terms of how some of those things are perceived. But it's also really interesting how some people are so firmly entrenched in those. And the, the messages that they give, you know, as parents picking up children on the playground, when they see somebody else's child, for example, somebody else's son in a pink outfit, um the comments that they make to their child to other children to that child wearing pink um is just really kind of fascinating in terms of how we engage in communities
1: mm-hmm. no that's a really good point it is it's so important those comments or um, ones that I've heard from clients repetitively is also if they're watching a show with their parent so the parent uh you know private conversations or our conversations around the dinner table is they're trying to say we're inclusive and no matter who you are or what happens in life we love you you're fully accepted. Um, little do they know the child hasn't come out to them yet and then they're watching a show together and they say oh turn it off or I don't want to see that or whatever or there's a judgment or a comment and the, and the parents are completely unaware that they're giving the opposite impression to their child which just builds that fear. Yeah, it's very, very powerful
4: when it's so interesting in terms of, of what you're communicating, because I grew up in a household where if there was a, a gay character on television, which was relatively rare. And if there was someone present, they were usually somehow psychologically damaged, evil, mm-hmm. dead by the end of the program. And I can remember just little moments where even my dad, just the body language, the reaction, the disgust. And I think like, I didn't come out till later in life. I didn't come out till I was 33 years old, to my family. And there were so many things and so many fears that were attached to coming out because of those little interactions that my dad probably wasn't even aware were impacting me. And um, like I when I tell my story about growing up and, and sort of the conditions I grew up in, I tell people that I feel like for a very long time, I didn't know what unconditional love was, because I can remember getting to be about eight or nine years old, and I I can remember stopping hugging my dad, because guys don't hug guys. and you know, all of these little things where in my mind, there were all of these doubts about if this information was shared with, with my family, whether or not they would accept me. Mm -hmm. And I'm very fortunate because when I did come out, there was obviously some difficult conversations, but I've, I've had a very supportive family and, and I wish that I had, had had more faith in their support because coming out later was hard. It was hard to live for that length of time and not be my authentic self. And mm-hmm. so, you know, as educators, as counselors, as people who have, you know, caring professions, all we really want is for people to be able to explore their authentic selves. Cause we know that it creates kind of the best opportunities for growth, for learning, for development, for inter- interpersonal interactions, relationships, the whole shebang. <laughs> Ryan, I'm curious how how is it
0: going? like how how is the your, your process with uh, within the school system are, you, are you, do you find resistance? Uh, do you find that people are receptive to that? How, how is that whole process going for you?
4: Um, for the most part, I would say it's been really positive. Hmm. Um, it's interesting because I sort of occupy a bit of a unique space in in how I approach this in the school system because I really focus on bringing representation into the classroom, on on building understandings through existing curriculum. And some advocates and activists around SOGI um, get really focused on vocabulary and on defining terms and defining not just those four sort of essential terms that I, I talked about at the beginning, but like, all of the terms and so sometimes what happens is we get a negative reaction because a child comes home with a new term and we're dealing with in many cases generations of parents who haven't had this education and so we certainly have had situations where parents have been startled or unprepared there's been a debate about whether or not we should be having these conversations. Should we be having these conversations with kids? And my mission Mm -hmm. is to shift the conversation from should we be having these conversations to how do we have these conversations in developmentally appropriate ways? Mm -hmm. And so um, we've certainly had our share of of resistance when, when my school district first started to um, propose a policy that was going to be LGBTQ plus inclusive, we had protests, we had pickets at the board office. We had a very loud vocal group of parents, a very small group of parents, but a very loud group of parents. And what was really interesting is that for me, I hadn't really done this in my classroom. I hadn't had these conversations in my classroom before this opposition. And when this opposition sort of erupted and it was featured in our community paper quite routinely, I decided, I felt like I had an obligation to do something, to say something. And so that's how I started my conversations. And at the time I was teaching at a school that was about four blocks from a major um, church community that where the opposition was very embedded. And mm-hmm. so the way that I've approached it is, is to be really strategic and to, you know, not every, not every educator is a social justice warrior, but every educator delivers curriculum. And so when you can give them material that that is sensitively handled, that is engaging activities that include non-binary, trans, queer characters. Um, And the focus isn't necessarily on, let's understand, you know, because this book has a gay character, instead of putting the the focus on, well then let's understand and explain what gay is, it's more like, let's think about the connections we make to the situation. Can you relate to feelings of the characters experiencing? Can you relate to experiences that they're having? Um, can you make predictions about it? So it's sort of using literacy strategies to dress some of the topics. And so in that approach, I've had a lot of success and I've even had enthusiasm. And I think that there's been um, people from faith organizations who've sort of go- gone Oh, you know what? This isn't as threatening as we thought it was. Because there is an awful lot of misinformation and disinformation that is out there, you know, that is designed to scare people that, you know, queer people are coming for all the children. And it's just not the case. Yeah. Hey,
3: are there some common myths that you have faced? And can we, um, you know, yeah. bust some of those myths tonight?
4: Yeah, well, for one, the, the idea that there's a gay agenda, for one, <laughs> um, people will say, oh, that's just part of the gay agenda, to which I'm always disappointed that I haven't been invited to brunch to discuss the gay agenda. Um, and I will say, I don't know what the gay agenda is, but I talk about what my agenda is, and that I want people to be able to have happy, healthy relationships with all the people they interact with. So that's kind of one of them. Um, The other is that, you know, any exposure to gay or trans identities, any any introduction of that as a topic is going to make kids gay or make kids trans. Mm -hmm. And it's just not the case. And it's always kind of interesting because my, my response to that is typically, listen, I grew up in a school system Where every story, every film, every example featured heterosexual characters. And I even grew up in a household full of heterosexual people, and it didn't make me straight. And so, you know, people talk about the other sort of big, you know, continuing misconception is that being gay or being trans is a choice that we make. And often accepting it is the choice that we make it's not like i even have a uh, a bit of a tension with my brother because he uses the term sexual preference and i'm like no no it's sexual orientation and those are two different things and he'll he'll push back and he'll go well you know i'm attracted to redheads that's my preference and i'm like okay that's fine but when it comes to sexual orientation and you say that you have this preference for redheads does that include redheaded men and he's like no of course not and i'm like then we're talking about you might have a, a preference for a particular type but your orientation is heterosexual and so it's all of those sort of like persistent myths the when we talk about trans people the the myth that trans people are going into washrooms as sexual predators Mm -hmm. and the reality is is that statistically and and there's lots of evidence and reports on this what trans people experience in in bathrooms is they are typically the victims of harassment and and bad behavior in bathrooms so things like that are things we're trying to combat the idea of a, a trans person competing in a sport, in a a gender that they have transitioned to, as being somehow advantageous. And it's interesting because even the Olympic, the International Olympic Committee just updated their guidelines. And there's some good things in the guidelines, and there's some limitations to the guidelines. But when we start to look at the research, and when we start to look at evidence based material. What we're, we're, what is consistently being demonstrated is that trans people are not predators, and I feel like that's the biggest myth, the biggest misconception in this field around soji, because I feel like we've got to a space where, for me, as a gay man, um, I don't feel like there's a ton of opposition and resistance. And I feel like there's sort of this place where, where we've, we've got to this point where people are like, okay, yeah, we get it, there's gay people. And it's almost like they've abandoned the fight with, with gay people, lesbians, bisexual people, because now all the energy can be directed at trans people. And so it's kind of this interesting space. And even when I stepped into my role, um, I, I was surprised how much I had to learn about gender identity and about gender expression because I sort of stepped into my role thinking I've mastered this like I'm a pretty good gay person and I can handle all like that material um, but it's been interesting how much of my work has been centered around um, creating the space for young students to explore their gender identity to create understanding in communities around them and that's been a lot of my work, hence the sweatshirt. <laughs> yeah.
1: I earlier, I was like, oh, "What's going on over there?" Um, out of curiosity, do you think that there's a community or a region in North America or even worldwide that you feel like is really leading the way for, you know, uh, providing awareness and education and destigmatization? And I feel like our our culture here or our local community uh, is trying. I think that we're trying really hard, but I don't really know if there's efforts elsewhere. Are you aware of anywhere that would be considered the kind of the leader in
4: this? Um, I don't know specifically. I, I think when you look at urban centers, when you look at places like Los Angeles, you look at New York, you look at Toronto, you look at Vancouver, and I think you see a lot of diversity and so you have communities, and you have community organizations who who create spaces to support queer communities. You have um, people who you know, like you have places where, where where queer people, LGBTQ plus people, can go and gather and like be joyous and celebrate. And then you have rural communities that don't necessarily have that sort of infrastructure that makes it challenging. And so what often happens is because those structures don't exist in some of those places, the the LGBTQ plus people can't wait to leave there. And they head to places like Toronto, to Vancouver, to LA, to New York, and there's plenty of other places. Um, But I I think, in, in many ways, Canada is in a good spot and has done some leadership and there have been um, progress made in terms of federal policies, in terms of provincial policies, even, even the difference between um, same sex marriage in Canada and the process of same sex marriage in the United States is, is quite different in terms of permission and in terms of when it was established.
0: Mm-hmm. How's that different, Brian? Because I don't think many of us in the States know know about that. How, how, is, the, how is that different?
4: Well, see, when, when marriage equality um, happened here in Canada, it was nationwide. And mm-hmm. so provinces didn't have the ability to sort of combat that. It was just federally determined. And so um, you didn't have the kind of bakery situations in, in little pockets of Canada. Whereas you've had that, you've had a lot of um, sort of referendums and sort of uh, more local or state election yeah. where it's been more of an issue. Yeah. And for us here in Canada, it was just federally established. Ah, I see. Sure. And like even even some of the federal language in the States um, applies to like state em- or sorry, um, the, the the sort of the national language applies to employees of the government in the different states, but not necessarily everyone else in the state. Mm. And so like there's that sort of complexity with with laws and and stuff in the states. And you look at like worldwide, you know, there's certainly still countries where um, being gay is punishable by death, that uh, imprisonment. And we're slowly (laughs) starting to see how um, the world is becoming more accepting and you see different countries passing laws, decriminalizing and things like that. It was really interesting because when India decriminalized homosexuality, a lot of people were like, oh, look, they're finally becoming progressive. And what's really interesting is when you look at a place like India, and you look at other eastern cultures as well, and their understanding of things like gender and gender expression and gender identity in India, it's quite historical that they recognized a third gender. Um, In indigenous cultures, um, many, many indigenous communities will use the term two spirit. And it is a, it's a complex understanding, but it's it's a very nuanced understanding of, of gender identity, of sexual orientation. And people who had those were were, were considered similar to people who were ambidextrous. Mm-hmm.
0: They were considered
4: to have the spirits of both male and female, and that was considered exceptional. And so there were people in communities who were gay or lesbian or trans who kind of were elevated and then a lot of those understandings and a lot of that acceptance of course was undermined by colonization when people came in and said you can't practice these cultures and these beliefs anymore and it's it's slowly as we look at you know this very slow process of truth and reconciliation you're starting to see communities sort of reestablishing those those traditional beliefs around that that sort of extraordinariness of, of people who don't fit into those exclusive categories of male or female.
0: So, Brian, let's bring it back to the original question from Joe, which had to do with, with uh, the well-being of people, right? And, and we kind bring it back to our, our mental health bootcamp ideas here of like how can we help people live, live healthy lives? So when considering things like like sexual orientation, gender identity, LGBT plus issues, what can we what can we take from this as far as well-being and like just healthy people in general? What do you think?
4: Well, I, th- I think a really sort of important understanding is that um, when we look at at people who come out, when we look at people who are part of queer communities and who identify in in whatever regard, the fact that they identify in those ways is not typically what requires sort of intervention or support. It's often that they're in environments that might be hostile to those identities. And so, you know, what we're trying to do in in, at the school level is to create communities of acceptance to, you know, even things like normalizing pronouns so that you know you, you you'll notice that i have my pronouns displayed in my in my profile name and what it communicates is the whole idea of listen i know that this conversation is going on i want to be a part of this conversation and i am open to people who are gender diverse and who use different pronouns and what i'm trying to do when i put my pronouns in my profile is to encourage everyone to put their pronouns in their profile because then it normalizes it and it doesn't become incumbent on the person who uses, for example, they them pronouns, to make the announcement to explain that to everyone. And so things like that, gestures like that, um, you know, traditionally we have had libraries that that weren't necessarily diverse and featuring stories where we saw a range of people identified and when we look at over the past few years we look at movies like Black Panther and we look at movies like Crazy Rich Asians and we look at movies like Love Simon those are movies that people went to and like you can find YouTube videos of people's reactions to those movies that are so joyous because they're seeing people like them represented in a way that is positive and powerful. And so you just see people who are just so excited and it's so exhilarating because they're seeing themselves represented. And those three movies that I mentioned, and I should probably add Shang-Chi, I can't remember the whole title, um, but those movies are movies that for years and years, Hollywood was saying, we can't make these movies because they won't make money and people won't go see them and so now that we've had better representation on the small screen better representation on streaming services we're starting to see and relate to people that have experiences that aren't our lived experiences and hopefully what it's doing is it's creating more empathy and hopefully what it's doing is it's 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 spurring people into action because one of the biggest things that i've noticed is we get these waves where we get opposition And it's almost, I'm almost in some ways thankful for the loud opposition. Because what it does often is it makes people who sort of sit in moderate spaces go, you know what? I really don't wanna be identified with that. That's hateful, that's ignorant. I don't wanna be identified with that. So I'm gonna shift my behavior and I'm gonna create more more awareness. I'm gonna be more open. And so I think we're seeing more allyship, we're seeing more examples of, um, you know, when homophobic language is being used, of people saying, hey, that's not okay. And even to see that, you know, like soccer leagues and football leagues are starting to find people who are using derogatory language on the field, because it communicates a message that we need to be respectful and that we can't use derogatory slurs to to communicate with people and i think it's things like that where we start to make people accountable for behavior that makes a big difference and i think when you look at a lot of companies they're they're genuinely interested in creating environments where more voices and more diverse voices are are heard um you know you think of things like affirmative action policies and how some people that that can actually make them feel very defensive because they feel like somebody's getting an advantage um but this idea that we're creating communities that actually reflect the communities around them and i think all of those things the sort of affirmation the freedom to explore the support because When we have a lot of concerns about you know kids who are at school and they're communicating you know coming out about their orientation coming out about their gender identity um we want the the, one of the things we want most is for them to be able to maintain communication with their families so that they have a support network because of course supportive networks are like hugely influential in positive outcomes And so it's all of those things combined of just, you know, creating awareness, um, enhancing representation, um, calling out inappropriate problematic behavior, inappropriate problematic language. It's all, and and doing it. So sometimes when, you know, we have these spaces where where somebody uses, you know, um, a derogatory term, and then we kind of pull them aside privately and say, you know, that's not okay. But sometimes to actually address that behavior in front of the person that it is directed at, and to everyone who's a bystander to that interaction becomes a powerful way of saying, this is not okay.
2: Wow. I have a, I have a quick question for you, Brian. I think, um, and, and I don't know how much time we're gonna have here, but just in, in my work, I've talked to a few parents um, And I just want to see what you would suggest parents whose kids might be questioning their, their gender, um, gender identity or, and, uh, and, you know, you might hear from parents, well, they're so young, or they have so much going on at their teen. They have so much going on at this time in their lives, or, um, how do I know they're just, it's not their response to getting bullied or not fitting in. And, um, you know, I don't anyways, it's just all this questioning they have. What would you, say to a parent like that or and or are there resources that you would suggest to a parent so they can go and get support or to learn um yeah mm-hmm.
3: if i can build on that a bit a lot of the <clears throat> i've had similar conversations with parents <clears throat> in a circumstance and these are often very compassionate attuned parents right and uh but there are yeah, a lot of confusion they're not quite sure uh and there's fear there i think underneath, underneath it all is a lot of fear in terms of uh, what what may happen and and uh and you're right like Joanna mentioned like sometimes there's challenges or difficulties and trauma or developmental side of things so a lot of confusion right so yeah good question
4: yeah and I think one of the things I always encourage parents to do is sort of reflect and just ask themselves what have you noticed that sort of aligns with what your child is saying what have you noticed that doesn't necessarily align with what your child is saying? Because I think when we often sort of, it's, it's pretty rare that a child who says is 13 and, and comes out as, you know, feels like they're transgender or non-binary, like there's typically a history, not in all cases, but there's typically hints. And like, I joke with my parents about some of my experience as a child. And I'm like, how did you not know? Um, so there's always sort of that element. And I think it is helpful to sort of get parents to just reflect and to sort of examine, what have I noticed? Um, because sometimes we haven't been attentive to some of the things that are going on. And then I would encourage them to read, to you know follow um, there's there's probably some really good people and I can't think of any offhand. Um, I used to follow Amanda Jetty Knox, who um, is a Canadian. She's a writer, and she has a transgender partner and a transgender child, and she's quite skillful at sort of responding to um, hateful comments online and. it it was really interesting because I did follow her for quite some time. And I just sort of sat in that space, not to comment, not to engage, but to listen. Um, One of the people that I follow um, on Instagram is Alok Vaid Manon. And their perspectives on gender are life changing. (laughs) um they're a person of color they're genderqueer non-binary and just the stories that they share about how they want to express themselves about the kinds of things they experience um out in public and and when i first started following them um it was uncomfortable because there were things about it that i'm like oh there's a bit of a spectacle But as I just sat in that space and absorbed and listened, um, it was really, really informative. And and part of what is really informative is the responses to transphobic comments, because they respond with such respectful, dignified, thoughtful responses. So there's lots of sort of organizations, particularly again, in urban centers, you know we have a number of organizations uh, we have trans care bc here in bc um p p flag parents and friends of um can't Less remember the is rest is. <laughs> yeah. Is. yeah some days there's so many battles that i have trouble um but they can be a good support group in terms of networking a lot of parents go to sort of facebook groups um and one of the things we tried to do we we host a number of events in our district and the, the events that we host are primarily for students, but we were all set to have a family event that was kind of gonna be elementary focused, bring your family. We were gonna have some sort of informational booth, some entertainment, and then of course COVID hit. But our intention in doing that, and we're trying to explore how we create a situation now with the restrictions that we still have in place but our intention was to try to provide ways that parents could connect with other parents because some of just those conversations about this is what I'm dealing with with my child oh that sounds really familiar or oh I haven't encountered that become I think really powerful ways for parents to develop understanding and and when you're able to talk to someone who's sort of been through some of the stages some of the questions some of the concerns that you've had it's often really helpful because it does give you perspective because sometimes if we're, we're getting perspective from people who don't have that lived experience it's a very different perspective yeah there's um i think that's helpful i
2: think there's I know there's a lot of resources out there, but I think you naming those two, Um,
4: When I think too, a really good place to start is Mo here in BC, for example, we have all of our schools, all of our school districts. There's 60 school, di- public school districts in BC, and they all have SOGI policies. And so even having a parent connect with their school and ask the school ask their district like what is in place what kind of supports are available and most school districts are able to provide that information or provide a referral to someone who can good mm-hmm. to you
2: know or just send them your way maybe but <laughs>
0: yeah maybe so you
2: your own school first I know you can only do so much and you're a busy guy so
0: Yes, Brian, you're a, a wealth of knowledge guys. Do we have some more questions for Brian or we, have we address some of the issues here or what have you, what else have you got? Okay, well, <laughs> Brian, I've got to say this has been, I, I've, I've been uptaking so much of the knowledge here that you've shared with us. This has been a wonderful time to, uh, to spend with you and, uh, thank you so much for for all the work that you do and
4: also for sharing some of that work with us you're very welcome i i have a lot to say on this topic and it's really nice to just have an opportunity to connect with some other people and and you know hopefully give some perspective and let's all just work together to make the world a better place i agree
2: absolutely yeah thank you so much for or Thursday night and coming on here and chatting and yeah I'm just so glad that Chris uh, and Brooke and Ryan got to kind of hear some of your thoughts and your insights so, I'm so
0: I agree I, this this yeah. has been a topic that I wanted to address for a long time and I'm so glad that we uh, we got to do that and got to do it with, with you someone who's right there in the trenches and uh, doing all the work really mm-hmm. first hand so thank you so much for being here okay, so, so that's it for us tonight. Uh, everyone listening, like and subscribe on Apple, Google, Podbean, novel, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. Send your questions to info at Visit us on Facebook or Instagram. Tell a friend or two. And thank you so much for being here tonight, everybody. We're thankful for you. Good night, everybody. Right, thanks for listening. Good night. Hi, okay.
3: everybody.
0: everybody.
2: Yeah.